Produce Talk, and this is D.G. Martin, and my guest is uh, Molly Worthen, who is an associate professor of history at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and uh, with a special interest, Molly, correct me if I say any of this wrong, in, in, the, uh, in, in religious history and the impact of religion on secular political matters, and so I'm really interested in how American religion, and particularly today's American religion, uh, impacts and informs our political discussions. And so, Molly, thanks. For, you're the expert on that. You've, you've, um, you're right for the New York Times, The New Yorker, and for other important magazines about these topics. Thanks for taking time to talk to us about it. Thank you for having me. Well, tell us. Um, I guess the, the I guess the basic question that many of us have, and we've uh, gotten some answers to it, is how can so many American, deeply religious American people be so deeply connected to the former president, uh, Donald Trump, who is anything but a, a model for religious lifestyle? And uh, how, how, did, how, how did, has that partnership developed? This is a great question. It's one that uh, I think outside observers, as well as people who who consider themselves part of evangelicalism in America, I think have wrestled with since 2015. And certainly I was one of many scholars who think I know a fair amount about American religious history, who, who was initially uh, t- taken aback and blindsided by the the strength uh, of, of evangelical support for Donald Trump. But The more I I thought about it, the more, in fact, I think it makes quite a lot of historical sense. And I think it's important to answer the question with nuance and recognize that, you know, there there is no such thing as a block white, even if we say white conservative evangelicals, within that there is so much diversity and a huge range of reasons why uh, people who might identify in in that subculture voted for Donald Trump and continue to stick with him. And I'll just uh, name a few, I think, of the important reasons to understand, and some of them are probably obvious to your listeners and others are, are, are perhaps more hidden in, in the history of evangelicalism and Christianity. I mean, first, I think that to, to some degree there, there is a, has been a deep loyalty among white conservative Protestants to the Republican Party. And, and so, uh, you know, that, that's something to just acknowledge up front, that, that for many voters, uh, that, that loyalty uh, was more important than their objections to a, an individual candidate. And also, so part of that, I think, uh, we can recall from the voracious you know, hatred that flew back and forth in the 2016 election that was tied up with a real disdain and fear of Hillary Clinton and what Hillary Clinton uh, represented. And so for many uh, conservative Christians, uh, voting for Donald Trump was primarily a vote against Hillary Clinton. Now, that raises the question, well, why? Why was Hillary Clinton so so frightening, uh, so the outrageous? Sunday school teacher, right. <laughs> Methodist uh, Right. Youth, uh, and 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 in her own mind, a model of what um, an everyday American Christian should be doing. Absolutely. I mean, by many measures, more devout as a Christian than than Donald Trump certainly is. Uh, well, I think there, there's a particular history, you know, of of the Clintons uh, and and uh, kind of a, the, a narrative that has developed about them in the conservative media. So that's one thing. But I think there's a more interesting, broader cultural story here, and that is uh, a, a deep um, frustration and anxiety among uh, 
conservative, primarily white conservative Protestants uh, about the the sliding, the eroding status of men in American of culture. white men, primarily white, yeah, white, primarily white men. Although I want to, I want to add some nuance to the race piece in a moment, um, and uh, a sense, and you know, this is supported by you know socio demographic research that you know the, the sort of sliding economic position, the higher rates of um, addiction and suicide, um, you know, that the fact that uh, you know men, young men today, cannot count on anything like um, uh, you know surpassing their their father socioeconomic status, cultural status, in general, an eroding cultural sense of cultural authority. And I think it became easy to uh, leap from that sense of insecurity, uh, a failure or a perceived failure to support one's own family, to tick the boxes of uh, what what masculinity is supposed to mean. It became easy to jump from that to this hatred of, of Hillary Clinton and then uh, to a, a, a real embrace of this candidate, Donald Trump, who had and, and still has a, a genius for articulating uh, the sense of victimization, the sense of being passed by and screwed over by 21st century globalization, by a, uh, you know, an American progressivism, a democratic party that has articulated very different priorities, uh, that has abandoned virtually any vision of kind of class alliance, economic-based alliance uh, that characterized an older vision of the American left in favor of a sort of identity group-based, uh, you know, cultural, uh, more cu- a set of cultural priorities um, that I think have really alienated uh, primarily white, conservative, uh, you know, Christian-identifying men. Um, and the, the reason, though, that this should not be reduced to a story of white people who are upset about the browning of America and losing their cultural status, I think, shows up very vividly in the 2020 election results, which progressives have have turned away from uh, the fact that, you know, more Latinos voted for Donald Trump in 2020 than in 2016. I think the same is true for African-Americans, at least African-American men, although I'd want to double check that. And that statistic gets no attention, as far as I can see, what from is the American the, which, left. The, the statistic— The fact that, that, that Donald Trump picked up more non-white voters— Okay, these voters that the you know American progressives think shouldn't it be a no-brainer that they hate mm-hmm. Donald Trump? Shouldn't you know Latino Americans hate this guy who's anti-immigrant? Molly, the um, I mean I, I, that, that's very important, but the but help me with this: the main strength is not with these dribbling of um, white uh, of black males and Latinos into the Trump camp. I mean, that is, is, that, is that the main message that, that you're bringing to us, that, uh, the, that the uh, Democratic Party's hold on those people is bleeding? I think the message is that there is a deep sickness at the core of secular, progressive 
American culture and ideology. And that is part of this account we have to give of the appeal of Donald Trump and the Republican Party uh, and the appeal of, of extreme conspiracy thinking to a far greater swath of the country. You know, these all of these people who voted for Obama, right, and who have switched their allegiance. Um, I think I think to really understand it, we have to confront every piece of it. Mm, we can't, mm-hmm, we can't mm-hmm. retreat into a story of, oh, those evil, racist, fact-oblivious Republicans. Of course, that's part of it, right? I mean, social scientists, uh, you know, it seems like every study they do on um, our motivated reasoning as human beings, our inclination to embrace facts or, or proclaimed facts that simply affirm our pre-existing prejudices, um, all of this affirms, in my view, what the best philosophers and theologians have been saying for millennia, which is that humans are depraved, fundamentally non-rational creatures, right? (laughs) It is a constant battle every day for all of us to think in a straight line, to actually accept new evidence, especially when it confronts and forces us to challenge our own preconceived notions and our own ideas of ourselves, right? And so, you know, to some degree, Donald Trump's ability to sell this false narrative, you know, these claims about about uh, the last election, you know, claims about immigration, whatever you want to cite, to some degree, he's playing on uh, aspects of humanity, right, that we shouldn't we shouldn't limit to any single subset of, of humans. But I'll add to that that he sort of unwittingly tapped into a long tradition that is quite robust in American, primarily white, conservative evangelicalism of rejecting the authority of secular experts, uh, rejecting, you know, those who would challenge the Bible, who would uh, place, you know, scientific or historical discovery um, above the authority of a traditional interpretation of Scripture on the basis not of a careful evaluation of those experts' evidence, but rather on the basis of their perceived presuppositions, their their atheistic assumptions that are unproven, um, that are just as much a matter of faith—this is the, the evangelical narrative—as as the faith of a, of a convicted evangelical Protestant, uh, but are sort of unacknowledged, are just kind of claimed as, as the scientific apparatus. Evangelicals have been doing that for more than 150 years. They have a whole, uh, you know, kind of alternative intellectual ecosystem of— um, uh, their own their own class of, of, of Christian experts who who share their presuppositions and who create a uh, a basis for rejecting experts who bring unwelcome news, re- rejecting the mainstream media, rejecting scientists who who warn about climate change and global warming. So there's an intellectual tradition there that Donald Trump, with his in- incredible chutzpah in just just waving away any facts that 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 or inconvenient to him. He, he tapped into that. And so I think there are reasons why uh, white conservative evangelicals have been particularly vulnerable to the false reality he presents, even though this is a kind of human temptation. This is, this is part of what interests me most about uh, what you, message you're bringing to us. And, and for those of you who are listening, if you joined us late, I'm visiting with uh, Chapel Hill's Molly Worthen. She's an associate professor of history at uh, UNC Chapel Hill, and we'll continue our discussion of uh, Donald Trump, uh, modern religion, uh, and its influence um, on politics in America after this short break.
Welcome back to Who's Talking. This is D.G. Martin. My guest is Molly Worthen. She's an associate professor of history at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and a worldwide recognized expert on the uh, complexities of uh, modern religion and its influence on uh, American politics. At least that's what we've been talking about. So, um, Molly, keep on talking about uh, Donald Trump and why. I guess the basic question, how can Donald Trump obviously a non-religious man, command the loyalty of so many really deeply religious people. And so just keep on going. You, I interrupted you. I love this topic. <laughs> I think there are deep historical reasons as well as reasons that are more particular to Donald Trump. I think it's important to understand that uh, conservative white evangelical voters are like, like many voters – uh, primarily uh, or rather capable of being pragmatists who can separate a candidate's personal convictions from their policy promises and the plausibility that they will carry those out. So you can go back you know, to the, the turn of the 19th century and find evangelical Baptists forming an alliance with, with the very heterodox Thomas Jefferson with no illusions about Jefferson's lack of commitment to traditional That's where you have a temporary – we have a temporary alliance. Right, so, although it was a strong right. alliance because they both, they both shared a, a, a equivalent horror of established religion and a desire for uh, a new vision for freedom of religion and the separation of church and state. So, so it was certainly an alliance based on something solid, but a clear-eyed one. And so in some sense, we can put uh, evangelical support of Donald Trump in that longer pragmatic tradition. We can, you know, look at someone like Ronald Reagan, you know, who, who similarly was not particularly devout and had this kind of checkered marital history. But I know that people still say, wait a minute, you know, how can we possibly equate Donald Trump? Doesn't he, you know, just exceed all levels of, uh, you know, moral degradation that we're, we've gotten used to accepting in, in, um, in our politicians? And I think the answer is yes. And so this is why, you know, you did see a not insignificant protest among thoughtful evangelicals against the support of their co-believers for Trump. You know, the editors of Christianity Today published a really hand-wringing editorial. I, I believe this was on the eve of the 2016 election, uh, just um, lamenting what, what they called political idolatry and a, a set of compromises in the interest of the agenda of the Christian right that that just went too far and made too many made too many compromises. But they were certainly the minority, uh, and I think uh, most evangelical voters were persuaded by. Donald Trump's rather mercenary promises that if they delivered the votes, he, you know, I didn't really care about the Supreme Court or about where the embassy in Israel was. You know, it's kind of indifferent to him. But if it meant he could stay in, in, in power and amass power, if he did what this particular voting bloc wanted, he would he would do that. And in fact, it was a, it was from the perspective of the straightforward agenda of the classic Christian right when it comes to you know abortion on the courts, uh, shrinking the power of government in the ways they care about, um, you know. If pro-Israel politics, Donald Trump has been, was the best president from the point of view of simply executing the policy aims of the Christian right of any president we've had, better than George W. Bush, better than Ronald Reagan. I'll add to this, 
that there are features of, of Donald Trump's leadership style and, in fact, his connections to the American Christian tradition that were recognizable to many American evangelicals, I think, that made him a familiar character. D Donald Trump did not grow up in a, in a non-church-going family. I mean, he his family attended for decades one of the most famous churches in New York City, Norman Vincent Peale's Marble Collegiate Church. Um, Norman Vincent Peale is one of the icons of the great American tradition of positive thinking. And many Christians would say he, he took uh, the ideas of positive thinking you know, just imagine something you want, pr pray for it, you know, maybe donate to the pastor who's supporting you in this, and you can expect God to reward you. Many Christians would say that Norman Vincent Peale took this message too far, right? There's a grain of it that is biblical, that God cares for his people. Um, but like all heresies, uh, positive thinking, the prosperity gospel is a version of it, takes a biblical idea to extremes out of balance with the rest of the gospel message. This is the, the church environment in which Donald Trump was steeped. And I think you can see it on full display in his career as a huckster entrepreneur businessman with, you know, Trump University well, you, and his the, promises. Yeah, but is that, I mean, that's, um, that, that comes out of the uh, prosperity gospel tradition that, Sort of uh, Norman Vincent Peale was a piece of that you can bargain with God and you do what he wants and he'll reward you. That, that Trump is really operating out of this or is this just something that's sidelined for him? Well, it's an idiom. I don't want to suggest that – I don't think there's any evidence that Donald Trump – uh, that his relationship with Christianity is anything other than a kind of political bargain. You know, so the team of Christian advisors he assembled, I, I, don't, I don't think that there's much reason to be anything other than fairly cynical about his own beliefs. What I'm saying is that because of his upbringing, he, he learned to speak in a kind of native way this idiom that is a very important in the broader culture of conservative American Christianity that would have been – that is familiar to American – many American Christians. Is this, does this explain why the, 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 that his rallies have – hundreds, thousands of passionate people who are there, is there a connection with their religious beliefs or is there something else that's driving them uh, not just to supporting and voting for Trump, but to go to a mass, exciting, almost a religious um, camp meeting type style um, an American evangelist would be very happy if they could if he or she could draw that kind of audience. And, I, and it got to have a religious connection. I think you're asking a broader sociological question. Absolutely. There, there is a connection between the tradition of American revivalism and American political rallies. And this is in no way unique to Trump. I mean, go back and, and uh, you know, read the newspaper accounts of the rallies of the, of the great, you know, the most successful socialist candidate for president in our history, Eugene Debs. And this was a guy who was, you know, was he an atheist? He certainly... Uh, he he played with the American religious idiom. He he deliberately uh, you know referenced Christianity, and you know there are were songs at his rallies that that played on the tradition of American hymnody. These were rallies that felt these were socialist rallies that felt like 
old-fashioned Methodist camp meetings. So this is a thing that American politicians, the better ones, do. It's not unique to Donald Trump. I do think, though, that there's been um, there's been some good analysis of American culture recently that has uh, has raised the the concern that American more and more Americans, as they drift from uh, traditional religious institutions, um, and I'm talking about a set of trends that are decades old. This is not brand new. They they still they crave something to worship, right? We are we are creatures. Mm-hmm. I, this is my view as a, as an observer of, of human religion. Uh, it, it doesn't matter if the churches are, you know, losing membership numbers. We we will always crave an object to worship, and what we worship, what we desire. I mean, this this shapes us much more than you know whatever uh, facts we claim to to ascend uh, ascend to. And so, absolutely, I think Donald Trump and his articulation, his ability to make people who uh, feel left behind by American culture, who resent other groups of Americans who, in their view, have sort of jumped the queue and are taking advantages away from them, um, their their uh, their susceptibility to the narrative about uh, you know various um, you know v- scapegoats, you know v- villainous forces that are reshaping public school curricula, you know all all these fears that a large swath of Americans have. Uh, here is a candidate, here is a president who articulates that, honors that, makes them feel seen, manages, and here's the genius of Donald Trump manages to both acknowledge and channel his followers' sense of being victims while also making them feel powerful. He does both at once. You get to have your sense of being beat up and put upon, honored and reified, while also getting to vicariously feel what it's like to be the, the successful bully who pushes people around. And I think this is the, this is the appeal of Donald Trump. He presents this story of America, of its of its downward uh, spiral, and you know what will be necessary to make it great again. That gives uh, you know these people who otherwise don't have a sense of of, of meaning or importance. Um, a feeling of being part of the story. I'm fascinated, and this is not unique to Trump rallies. I'm fascinated by now the, the, the just ubiquitousness of the the smartphone, you know, filming and constant selfie taking that is absolutely a fixture of any rally, right? And it's as if um, documenting your place in this event and taking the picture that proves you were there. You were maybe you were just an extra in this production, mm. but you were there. I mean, that's almost more important than than being present in the moment. I think that's really telling about our craving as humans for a feeling of a role of significance in a narrative. Well, if you joined us late, I'm visiting with uh, Associate Professor Molly, uh, uh, Professor of History, (laughs) Molly Worthen, who's talking about uh, the connection between uh, American politics and American religion, and she and I'll be right back.
Welcome back to Who's Talking. This is D.G. Martin. I'm visiting with uh, Associate Professor of History, Molly Worthen. Uh, she is now a welcome fixture at the University of North Carolina, and we hope we're going to be able to keep her here. Uh, for those of you who don't know about Molly Worthen, she is not only a great uh, history teacher, she's uh, done a wonderful series on um, on world uh, on, Christi- on the history of Christianity after the Reformation, which uh, is promoted by what we know as the teaching company now, known by some other some other names. But a whole course of, gosh, Molly, 25, 30? 30, 36 lectures. 36 lectures taking us all the way from Martin Luther to, um, well, I will say to Donald Trump <laughs> and American religion. And so we're pleased to have her here on WCHL. Uh, Molly, um, you've talked about the, the the kinds of things that Donald Trump uh, brings to the table himself, but is the support for Donald Trump large, in part or largely a reaction to other things that are going on in American politics? For instance, was uh, the vote for Donald Trump mainly in 2016, mainly a vote against Hillary Clinton and what she stood for? Or was it positive uh, for Donald Trump? I think that, gosh, I'm speculating here. I, I think that in probably any presidential vote where you're you're faced with a, a, a turnover of parties, a, um, a, a turnover of candidates, there's got to be some quite substantial portion of the vote that that we might characterize as reaction rather than a positive support for the candidate. So, you know, I'm not, what was the vote for for Donald Trump? Was it more more of a reaction than than the support for Obama by, uh, you know, liberals who were frustrated after, you know, Mm. eight years of of, uh, George W. Bush? I I'm not sure about that, um, but I think I think the short answer is is yes. A great deal of it had to do with uh, a real concern about the perceived direction of the country, and a, a feeling that um, a set of values and and subcultures that uh, felt themselves to be really at the the heart of the American experiment and in charge of the, uh, the the sort of substrate of the of the culture was no longer in that position and uh, needed a, needed a candidate who would who would explicitly call out um, the this drift in in the direction of of, of secular you know multiculturalism um, that I think has disturbed a lot of more conservative Americans but you know as I said a few minutes ago I, I do think that um, there's been a, a deep deep failure on on the American left there's been um, the, the polarization has been more extreme on the right don't get me wrong um, especially on issues um, like abortion uh, and, and and sexual identity and and absolutely on uh, sort of the the degree to which um, the free market should be unfettered and and um, and not uh, regulated that that drift has been more extreme on the right such that if we go back and look at the policies of someone like Ronald Reagan I mean he would be kind of on the left wing of the of today's Republican Party however I think we do need to acknowledge the polarization on the left the way in which uh, a, a pretty pretty radical support for abortion access has become uh, a, a shibboleth that cannot be explicitly challenged um, the way in which uh, certain sort of culture war priorities 
have, have really gained absolute precedence over, I think, uh, economic issues that in principle could maybe gain broader support. Um, and, you know, this is, uh, this is a complicated question because as much as Americans express in polls support for things like, you know, health care access and better public schools and, and moderate, reasonable gun control policies, they don't seem as motivated to vote on that basis as on some of these culture war mm-hmm. matters. And so, you know, what that presents a dilemma for, for uh, moderate Democrats who want to build bridges. I, I acknowledge that. Um, but I do think that uh, American liberals and progressives have uh, kind of given up on, on class-based alliances. They've made it almost impossible for, say, progressive pro-life Catholics to take on a really active role in the Democratic Party. Um, there, I think there is an opportunity, especially among younger conservative Christians, both uh, Catholic and Protestant, um, who are different from their parents' generation, who, while they, they're awfully conservative, you know, if you poll them on issues like sexual identity or a- abortion, uh, they don't have their parents' degree of, say, phobia mm. uh, toward, toward people different from themselves. They're likely to have gay friends. They know transgender people. They, they sincerely wrestle with the question of, of the you know, traditional interpretation of the Bible alongside these humans that they care deeply about. And so they, they simply have a different orientation toward these classic culture war issues. They crave—I mean, this is my anecdotal experience as a journalist— interviewing a lot of these Christians, they, they crave a, a way to carve out a different, uh, a different path for being a, a convicted traditional Christian in 21st century America, recognizing its pluralism, uh, recognizing um, the way in which they are perhaps, uh, to use the words of the, the ex-Southern Baptist and, and almost lone anti-Trumper Russell Moore, uh, to be a prophetic minority a prophetic minority as opposed to a moral majority. I think a growing number of younger Christians acknowledge that that's that's where they are, and maybe that's a good thing. This return, you could say, to the status of Christianity in, you know, first and second century Roman Empire, when they were this minority, this, you know, uh, salt and light uh, meant to model the kingdom of God in this largely pagan, pluralistic culture. And that— that actually makes the Christianity uh, a much more serious commitment. It means, you know, forget about being a cultural Christian. And they are faced, though, Christians who have this state of mind, with the reality that um, more so more Americans identify, more white conservative Americans identify as evangelical now than before Trump. And the analysis of this, which I think is persuasive, is that for a lot of these people who are telling pollsters, yeah, I'm an evangelical, it's a cultural affinity group. It's not that they've suddenly started going to church. Uh, lots of church-going evangelicals have supported Trump as well. Um, but there is this, I think, disconnect between uh, conservative Christians who are quite serious about their faith and disillusioned with the Christian right on the one hand, and then a, a group of kind of cultural Christians for whom saying they're evangelical signals certain cultural, ideological, political loyalties. 
but in that former group, uh, those those serious Christians, um, I think there are some opportunities for alliance building uh, among mm. more moderate Democrats. I don't want to suggest. I, let me add a caveat. I don't want to suggest that that no. No serious Christian could support Donald Trump in good conscience. I've talked to enough uh, deeply devout Christians who are very serious about the abortion question, for example, who who absolutely believe it is murder, and that is the single reason they voted for Donald mm. Trump. And those people, you know, they need to be taken seriously. So again, I stress the the variety of reasons why Christian Americans might support Trump. Well, well, uh, I mean that's so fascinating, and it introduces the question that I want to talk to you about in the next hour, and that is, is our American Christianity in trouble? And not, not talking about all of the uh, trouble that they're making for the Democrats, but uh, what is the future of uh, Christianity in the United States? And I'll ask you that question after we take this short break. If you joined us late, I'm visiting with Molly Worthen. She's an associate professor of history at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She and I will be right back. Welcome back to Who's Talking. I'm visiting with uh, Associate Professor of History Molly Worthen. We're talking about uh, her expertise international-wise about uh, American religion and politics. And Molly Worthen, thank you. You've been wonderful. Now that we've talked a lot about the um, uh, the, the problems that strong Christians are showing for primarily democratic politics, I'd like for you to talk about the status of American Christianity and where it's where it sits now historically and what its future might be. Can you can you do that for us? That's a great question because it's so tempting, especially as as Americans, to be very parochial in how we think about, um, you know, our, our story. Uh, Christianity is the only world religion whose center of gravity has radically shifted geographically over time. This is not really true of any other world religion, which has stayed, you know, pretty much uh, centered around where it was founded. Um, but Christianity, you know, moved from the Middle East to, to Northern Europe, uh, to the sort of Anglo-American sphere. And now uh, there's no question that the center of gravity in terms of the simply the number of Christians, practicing Christians, has shifted to the global south. I mean, there are far more practicing Christians. What is Global South. Oh, gosh. I mean, that's an umbrella term that usually includes um, uh, Africa, Latin America, uh, you know, most most of Asia. It's it's sort of a broad brush way of capturing um, the, the, the parts of the world, the, most of the world that is not the traditionally sort of 
Christian or post-Christian, you know, West or, or mm. sort of, you know, Ru- Russia's status is, I suppose, ambiguous. But uh, I, Russia is certainly not part of the global South here. So, so th- this is where the 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 energy. This is where the next millennium of Christianity is is really centered. Um, you know, these are the the huge, huge churches, the biggest revivals, uh, the kind of cutting edge of uh, wrestling with uh, the relationship between traditional theology and the challenges of the modern world. By and large, these Christians in the global south are absolutely not uh, cut out of the same cloth as uh, liberal, socially progressive American Christians. I Um, thought, excuse me for interrupting you, but I'm just repeating what you told me, and that is that the uh, um, American Christians are secularized in many respects— and no longer really believe in miracles and these kinds of well, things. Well, I don't think that's true. <laughs> well, wait a minute. Maybe the ones you hang around with. <laughs> they're, 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 I live in Chapel Hill, and so there are people who go to church who are skeptics about and questioning about the um, core, some of the core beliefs of Christianity. In Africa, there's no question that miracles happen. They happened in the Bible times, and they happen today. So that there is a—the thing—here, now I'm preaching to you, and you have to correct me now. Some of the things that drove the explosion of Christianity were the belief that that God could change things for you through prayer and that their miracles happened and would happen again. There's a— in my view, a declining belief in that in American Christianity, but not worldwide. The people who really believe these things drive and go out and are missionaries. So, all right, I turn the floor back over to you. That's which is what. Yeah. I, well, I think perhaps you could make an argument that there is declining belief in the miraculous among white American evangelicals. Mm. But you know the the the. The the majority of the immigrants who come to our country, uh, uh, you know, who are not white, are Christian of some variety or or another, um, and. It's not yet clear uh, where, say, you know, the huge numbers of um, Christians who come from Latin America and Central America will, will will fit, will find their political home, if they will find any political home in the American polarized context. I think there's a lot of hope on the part of Republicans that, uh, you know, these uh, these Christians who are generally very traditional on, you know, sexual identity, on, on abortion, things like this, aren't they natural – a natural fit for uh, the Republican Party. On the other hand, Democrats say not at all. You know, these are these are Christians who who get the ec- the economic justice argument, and they you know they're sick of white racism. They're, they're natural Democrats, and it's just not clear how it's going to shake out. So I think that's an important uh, part of the answer to your question. You know, what's the future of American Christianity? It's less and less white. Is it less and less traditionally Christian? I don't know. I mean, I think I think. Yes, there's a strong argument to be made uh, uh, for the for the idea that the the broad direction of um, American culture is going to follow. We're sort of a couple, we're a century or two behind, say, Western Europe mm, in mm. the trajectory of, of secularization, in kind of the declining affiliation with traditional religious institutions and so forth. That there were some exceptional features of American history that made American, uh, you know, primarily, you know 
know, European uh, of European origin, um, religiosity more robust and vital for longer than, uh, you know, the churches in, in Western Europe. But those exceptional features have not proven exceptional enough to exempt America from the broader trajectory of mm. Western civilization. Yes, I, I think I would sign on to that. However, there's a lot of question marks here. And one is the interaction of the, the pretty devout rest of the world with uh, post-Christian Western culture. I think there are some uh, American Christians who are optimistic about what they call reverse missionaries. You know, so, so missionaries from Uganda and missionaries from Colombia who come to bring the gospel back here. I think ah, there's not yet reason to think that uh, such efforts, and they certainly exist, uh, will will spark some sort of, uh, you know, kind of civilization-wide revival. But they're not wrong uh, when they identify a, a really potent force uh, in, in these missionary-minded immigrants who, I think for now, primarily are serving immigrant communities, you know, in, in cities like Houston, um, but have a broader vision vision. And in interesting ways, uh, you know, American Christians who are sort of shaped by this secular context, who are always on the defensive about miracles because they have to be, uh, they're, they're traveling abroad. They're learning from Christians in the global South in interesting ways. And, you know, this is a, this is a long story. Uh, you know, you can go back to the, the 1960s and 1970s when you have, uh, you know, the accounts of uh, American missionaries from churches that might have been fairly conservative, but we're not really inclined to believe that God, uh, you know, heals, that the Holy Spirit, you know, prophesies uh, in our own time. And they would write these letters back from the mission field saying, listen, guys, I saw this healing take place. I, I, my assumptions are being rocked. I mean, I had a conversation with a young woman um, uh, who ca came out of an American evangelical context. This is a several years ago now. She didn't believe in miracles at all. And she was living with a, a sort of very Pentecostal, very Holy Spirit-focused family. I think this was in Switzerland. This wasn't even in, you know, some place in the global south where we might be more prepared to see it. And she told me with absolute conviction in her eyes that she saw saw uh, her host mother's uh, kind of crippled arm lengthen and straighten in front of her eyes. And she was, this was, you know, had happened several months prior. She was still wrestling with it. I will just say, I'm the product of an academic system in which, you know, our whole thing is we have to base arguments on empirical evidence that we can all access. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the miraculous presents all sorts of problems for historians like me at the same time. Is the right thing to do to turn away from the pile and pile of oh, testimony? Oh, Molly Worthen, we're just getting started <laughs> and the time's run out. <laughs> oh, this is great. Thank you. Will you come back sometime and oh, we'll continue this great conversation? Uh, if you joined us late, our guest has been Molly Worthen, a wonderful uh, and inspiring and uh, challenging report that you've given us about American religion in the age of Trump. Thank you, Molly Worth, and thanks to all you all for listening. Uh, this is D.G. Martin, who's talking, and I'll be back here before you know it. <laughs>